Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. The podcast where we sit down, drink coffee, and talk justice. On this episode, I get to talk to Steve Chalk, MBE. Steve is the founder of the Oasis Charitable Trust, which is an organisation with projects all over the UK, addressing a variety of issues, including prison reform, mental health, food insecurity, racial justice, human trafficking, and is probably best known as an education provider with over 50 schools and academies up and down the country. He is also a Baptist minister, Guinness World Record holder, radio and TV broadcaster, UN special advisor, and many other impressive things. I was very conscious of the competing demands on Steve's time when we spoke. You can hear in this podcast his email notifications pinging away every few minutes. He is a busy man. You may have seen him on the news recently as a regular school spokesperson during COVID times, answering questions as to whether we should or shouldn't open schools, should we put on holiday schemes or not, are we putting the staff at risk, etc., etc. Well, you will be relieved to hear that we're not going to talk about any of that in this podcast. In fact, COVID barely features at all. Neither are we going to talk about the theological hot potatoes that many will associate with Steve Chalk. What I wanted to do with this interview is understand the man, lift up the bonnet and see what is the driving force behind all this action. Because I have a sneaking suspicion that his life is motivated in no small measure by the pursuit of justice. So have a listen, see how I get on. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Chalk. Okay, Steve, so welcome. Welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. Thank you for for finding this time to, to talk with me this afternoon. How are you? I'm doing okay, actually. I'm having a good lockdown day. Some of them are easier than others, aren't they? And uh, But this one's been a good day. I've had some good conversations and made one or two little breakthroughs. And now I get to talk with you. Yeah, I love a breakthrough on a Monday. It sort of sets the whole week up, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um, what's dreadful is uh, is when something doesn't work. And you hear about it on Friday afternoon. It kind of plunges the whole weekend into a dismal kind of existence when something falls through. And that happens as well, doesn't it? But yeah, it's it's Monday afternoon. And so far this week, everything's everything's going good. Off to a good start. That's great. Now, I know just how how busy you are. Well, not in detail, but I have I don't need convincing. And I've had to leverage my friendship with your lovely daughter Emily to to get a bit of your time today and and I just thought well actually this this man who probably works all number of hours of the day must rely on our our commodity of choice our favorite product to get him through the day so am I presuming incorrectly there it is there it is and actually this is my second packet because um one of our children uh, bought us they all our kids love coffee and uh, one of my sons Emily's uh, brother Josh uh, uh, ran uh, the Oasis coffee house in Waterloo for a long time so he's a bit of a connoisseur and I got a packet of this and this is my second packet so there it is I'm a coffee drinker in the mornings so I was going to fish for an endorsement there, but you've just given it to me on a plate. For those, obviously, you aren't going to watch this because it's a podcast. Steve was just ha- handling a, a bag of Blue Bear coffee that he's kindly been bought. So my, my work here is done. I could probably close out this, this podcast already. Can I, can I sort of put you on the back foot a bit, a bit naughty, really? And as an overture to the meat of what I hope to come out of our conversation, can I ask you a slightly... A slightly abstract question being, Steve, what, what does the word justice mean to you? I think that um, the term justice is a really misunderstood one in our culture, and it has several different meanings for different people. So give him justice, give her justice. It's about time they got justice can mean lock them up, throw away the key. Um, and and that's very penal, isn't it? It's about retribution. 
But my understanding of justice is almost, well, in fact, is the opposite. I believe that justice is when those who've been robbed of justice finally get heard, finally listened to. Um, and I, that's a very ancient understanding of Oasis. All of those who've never had a voice, finally, a just judge shows up and they are heard and they are seen and they are understood. And I think that that is at the heart of what Oasis aims at in all of its work. Bringers of good news, really good news into people's lives. I love that. I, I gave him no warning for that question. He didn't get an email or anything. So you've answered that with the poison sophistication of, uh, of a BBC broadcaster. Very, very well, impressive. Well, you know, the, 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 the reason is because I, I think about this issue a huge amount of time. I don't know if you're aware, but there's something which is called the law of the claw. The law of the claw is used in the penal system and it's used in our court system. And the law of the claw is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which isn't to do with Moses in the Bible. People go, oh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Oh, that's Moses. You know, that's the Old Testament. Actually, it's what's known as the, the code or the law of Hammurabi. Hammurabi lived about 500 years before uh, Moses, and he was the king of Babylon. And we know about what's called Hammurabi's code. In fact, it's on what's called a giant stela uh, in the Louvre gallery. You know, if you go to the Louvre gallery, you go see the Mona Lisa. And if you've ever done that, you go, oh, is that it? It's a bit small. It's a bit dismal. And what you don't realise is that you're just about a five minute walk from Hammurabi's code. What is a stela? A stela is a giant slab of stone. And you go see, they've got the original Hammurabi's code. There are, there are many other uh, smaller ones that have been dug up from Babylon, Iraq. But here is Hammurabi's code. It's about two metres high, about six foot, seven foot perhaps high. And it's got laws written on. And here is one of the laws written by Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a bruise for a bruise, a bone for a bone. And, um, and this Hammurabic code or, or concept of law, if you go to the Supreme Court in Washington, around the top, you know, it, it, it carved into marble is the scene of Hammurabi giving out the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Why does the death sentence exist in America? Hammurabi's code. The, the punishment is equivalent to the crime, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But we've got to get beyond retribution uh, in terms of justice. We need to find a new way, which I think is all about restoration, for those who've been spat on, those whose society has left nowhere, we have to find a new way forward. It's about restoration, a different model of justice. So leaping from the justice system into uh, the education system, which I, I know you're very hard to pigeonhole, Steve. I've been doing my prep for this podcast and it's, I would describe you as a Renaissance man. You've got, you've got fingers in lots of pies. But at the moment, I think you're probably best known or Oasis, the Oasis Trust, the organization you run for the academies, for the schools that you, you operate up and down the country. So for our listeners that may be less familiar with Oasis and your work, could you give us a picture today of, of what the Oasis Trust, what they're doing, who you are, what your work looks like? Well, um, I founded Oasis in 1985, a long time ago, when my hair was black, not white. Um, and uh, and when my daughter uh, was uh, a, a couple of years old, so um, yeah, Emily was a couple of years old, and so since then Oasis has grown, and the and now if if you like, we have about six thousand staff in in England, and then others in other countries. And what we try to build is healthy communities where everyone's valued, everyone has a place, everyone can flourish, everyone can thrive, and everyone can achieve their God-given potential. So what that means in real terms is 
Oasis began with housing projects and we house and um, provide housing for approximately, I think, 2000 or so uh, young adults a year. So we house some of those young people and we help others find housing because housing is really important for justice. You've got to be warm and you've got to feel secure somewhere. Um, and we work with people who are, are homeless and then uh, 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 and not in that situation. And then we began in other countries, schools, and we, we began working with people who are out of education. And then in the early 2000s, we were given the opportunity to start schools here in England. So we now run 53 schools. We have about 30, 32,000 students, and that's everything from two-year-olds to 18-year-olds. But we also run education for those who've been excluded from mainstream education. So in Tower Hamlets, for instance, one of our latest projects, we've taken on what's called an AP, Alternative Provision. And this is for Key Stage 4 kids. That means 14 to 16-year-olds who've been in the courts. You know, so, some of them have, have been on a custodial sentence, but they're now back out in the community. They've committed sometimes very violent crimes. Uh, but we need to begin with not what have you done wrong, but what's happened to you, what's broken down in your life. And so whether it's housing or education, or we run loads and loads of other community uh, projects, we work in custody centres uh, with young people, and we work in A&Es, but we run food banks and debt advice centres and community shops and coffee shops and community farms and all sorts of things, children's centres. But it's always this same thing. Um, in fact, our badge, that's a good way of saying it, the badge of Oasis is the O of Oasis. So all our kids in our schools, for instance, the badge on their blazers or their sweatshirts, if they're in a, a primary school, is, is the Messio of Oasis, the circle of Oasis. And for us, that su sums up our philosophy, even our theology, actually, which is everyone's in. Mm -hmm. And when everyone's in and included, it's messy, but it's also strong. All those strands make strength. So inclusion is our thing. And inclusion is another way of doing justice. What does justice look like? In reality, it has to look like inclusion. It has to look like love. So uh, that's what Oasis is. And actually, we've just been awarded by um, government. This is uh, the, the latest project, actually, or one of the latest projects I'm working on. Uh, we've just been awarded by government, that is the Ministry of Justice, the opportunity for the first time in British history to set up an alternative to youth jail. And we're going to call it Oasis Restore. It's in Medway in Kent. It's going to open next year. So all the young people who come to us, 12 to 18 year olds, they would have been sentenced for violent crimes. But our question isn't what have you done wrong? It's what's happened to you? Have you been neglected, let down, betrayed? So you're starting with a story of redemption, a story of restoration. Love it. I love it. So let's come, let's come back to that theme and you know, put a pin in it. I want to start in, so do you know I, I've got a flat in South Norwood? Did you know that? No, you're yeah. not, have you? Yeah, literally. <laughs> Come out of Norwood Junction train station and, and I, I've got a flat above the Audi. So I know you know that area well because oh. you're a, a Palace fan and from, from that area. So I moved out of South Norwood during lockdown. I'm in Norfolk as we speak now, but that's still where my, my home is. All oh, right. So I, I, um, I was born in uh, Mayday Hospital, in the Croydon Hospital, the one that serves South Norwood. And then I lived just off South Norwood High Street for the first 10 years of my life in a road called Grosvenor Road. And then uh, we moved, um, well, in fact, uh, I think the council pulled down the, the housing down, it was poor housing. And we moved up the road to Whitehorse Lane, which is at one end of the Palace football ground, which is why I'm a Palace fan. And um, uh, yeah, and so my life actually revolves around and a uh, Palace and Palace Football Club and, and even the vision that, that, that came to me when I was a teenager for the work that I'm now involved in, Oasis now does, uh, really started on a particular night with a walk past Palace football ground. Yeah, I, I, I heard that. It features quite largely in your, in your story. And that's, let, let's, let's hear that then. So, you know, at the moment, looking at you today, where you are, you have the most incredibly impressive, prodigious portfolio of action, right? But that started 
this is what I find amazing about your story, Steve. It started with this young teenage lad from South London with an Indian dad and an English mum feeling rejected. I'm not going to tell your story for you, but but you can tell it and share it with us. Yeah, so my dad uh, comes, uh, my dad's died now, but um, both my mum and dad have died now. But my, my dad came from India at the partition of India, 1947. And, um, and he arrived in this country, very dark skin, um, uh, but like many immigrants, found it very difficult to get work or, or work of any quality. He wasn't taken seriously, I think. But then he, um, he found my mum and they got married. And my dad was, was, when I was growing up, he was the darkest skinned person I knew. Um, he was really almost jet black. Um, and, um, and my mum was one of the pinkest people I knew because she was born in Chatham. My mum was one of those people. That if she ever went out in the sun, she went bright red and blotchy. She never went brown. I can relate to that. <laughs> and so uh, the thing was, um, it's, you know, when my mum married my dad, um, certain elements of her, parts of her family, members of her family never spoke to her again. Um, and they wouldn't come and visit us. And um, and so I grew up very aware of racial prejudice. And, you know, people now always think that, you know, because I founded Oasis, I'm rich, which is wrong for a start. But they also think I've probably got some yacht. And you'd be amazed at the number of people who think that my skin tone is to do with my Mediterranean holiday. <laughs> it's actually to do with the fact when I was growing up, I was called a half caste. Now, I, you're not allowed to say that anymore because it's offensive. But genuinely, that's what I was called. I was just the half caste at my school. Um, uh, now, of course, London is much more multicultural, and multiracial than it was then. But I was um, uh, I was a, a dark skinned kid back then. People often ask me, actually, if I was offended by being called the half caste. I think people are now, but I wasn't. It was just my nickname, you know, and. Like there was no arguing with that. I wasn't the same colour as everyone else. So I didn't feel particularly got at it, got at because of it. But we did grow up in poverty. I mean, real, real poverty. Um, I, I was reflecting the other day how different my life is uh, to my mum and dad's life and what they had to endure, um, you know, what they gave. My mum and dad never had a bank account. You know, they ne we never went on a holiday ever. I never went to a restaurant until I was about 18 and somebody took me to one, uh, you know, and it, it, you know, all that kind of thing. But they were fantastic, my parents, absolutely amazing. Uh, but I suppose that I became used to a world filled with prejudice mm. and poverty that way. And then then the uh, Homesdale Road, um, at the end of the palace ground and my story of uh, this is simply that um, I fell in love with a girl that went to a girls' grammar school because they used to do the 11 plus, you know, that segregating system in Croydon, and I failed the 11 plus. But this girl was beautiful. Her name was Mary, and still is Mary. In fact, she's not changed it, and <laughs> just got a lot older. And um, and she used to go to a youth club at one end of the Palace Football Ground, which is called the Homesdale Road end, where all the home fans sit. And I lived at the other end. So I heard that she was going to this youth club. So I started going and it was in a Baptist church hall. I went because of Mary Hooper. That was her surname then. And um, and um, I, I don't know how long I went for, you know, I really can't tell you whether it was weeks or months. I think it was months and months. But anyway, I just she was beautiful. And then one one Friday night at the youth club, one of her friends, uh, my friends, told me as well, told me that she'd never go out with me if I was the last bloke on the planet. And that night I stumbled home up the side of the Palace football ground from the Homesdale Road end to the White Horse Lane end where I lived. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to go to that youth club again. Never, ever, because it's so embarrassing. And then I thought, well, actually, the story they tell me down at that youth club is a lot better than the one they tell me at 
my school and my school, which was a secondary modern school. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but basically it's a school where you never did any O levels, any GCSEs, because you were considered not to be academic enough to be worth sitting in front of an exam paper. Uh, and, and so they told us that we work with our hands, not our heads. And, you know, we'd never go to university and all that kind of thing. We weren't that kind of kid. But down at the youth club, they told me my life had potential and meaning and purpose and uh, all that kind of stuff. And genuinely, I was wandering home up the side of this youth, uh, the palace ground uh, or a road parallel to it called Dixon Road um, in South Norwood. Um, and as I wandered up the road, I thought, Do you know, like, I'm never going to that youth club again because it's so embarrassing. Then I thought, but they got a much better story than my school's got. Then I thought, actually, I'm going to keep going to that youth club. And then I thought, it's a really strange thing because it's only like a five, 10 minute walk. I thought, not only am I going to keep going, but I really believe that story. Now, it was run by a church. And I, I just thought, hey, the church has got a better story than my school's got. So I'm going to, yeah, I'll embrace that story. I don't think I could use big, long words like embrace, but I believe that story. So uh, that's going to be my story. I'm, I'm going to be one of those Christian people, whatever that is. I haven't got a clue what one really was. And um, and and uh, when I grow up, I'm going to lead a youth club like that. I'm going to be become a church leader, I think. And when I grow up as well, I'm going to start a school that's worth going to because mine wasn't. And I'm going to start a house for all the kids who are not loved and cared for, like my mum and my dad care for me. And I'm going to start a hospital that because I, I was aware that a load of people in their, their most desperate, lonely moments didn't have the care they needed. So that night I got in, my dad was out, he'd got a job on the railway station, he was ticket collector at Norwood Junction, which on, you live up the road for. So he used to be the, one of the ticket collectors, and he was doing shift work. And um, so my mum said, if you had a nice evening, I didn't tell her about Mary Hooper because I was embarrassed. She didn't even know I fancied her, let alone that she didn't fancy me. But I did say, yeah, mum, I've decided that when I grow up, I'm going to start a school and uh, I'm going to start a house, a hostel for kids. And I'm going to start a hospital. And she looked at me. My mum left school, I think, at the age of 12. So, you know, so she looked at me and she said, very nice. And <laughs> She had no idea what I was talking about, but that made two of us because nor did I. And uh, but that was it. And and I'm very grateful. Uh, genuinely, the story aside, it came from outside of me. And that's why I tell you the story about my dad's colour and the poverty we grew up in. Because if I try to self-analyze, which is a dangerous thing to do, the only reason I can think that this kind of justice-driven thing came to me was because of what I'd witnessed. Uh, that's my best guess at it. Um, but anyway, it burned into me. And I can genuinely tell you, Bryn, right, every single day of my life since then, I've known what I should be doing. It's a gift from outside of yourself. Now, I can't tell you that every day I've done it, but every day I've known what it is that I should be doing, even if I've done nothing about it. I think that is just so remarkable that this 14 year old lad that's been told at school that he's rubbish comes from a, a working class household just the is precocious and audacious enough to have a vision like that and like I completely identify what you're saying that it came from outside of you that rather than within you but mm you followed through with it. You know, it didn't get suspended. When I was 14, I wanted to be a professional football player or a stuntman or an astronaut. I didn't think, right, right, what's failing in the public sector? What can I take on with my life? But you, you had that remarkably unique vision and you followed through with it. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, there's several bits about that, you see. I, I, I didn't know what the public sector was. <laughs> I didn't know what a charity was. Genuinely, I didn't. I didn't understand that. The school I went to, there was no one ever told us we could go to a university. I used to watch University Challenge at home, you know, Jesus College, Cambridge and all of that. Well, these were long haired people from a different planet to me. So my world didn't link with any of that. So there was no choices about any of that. Um, so all of that uh, happened for me, if you like. And the other thing, and I say this, I, I expect, you know, I what I'm just about to say to you, you probably will think is an exaggeration, but it is not. Right? My mother, not my dad, 
but my mother was and remains the hardest working, longest working, most determined person I have ever met anywhere. Trust me, that is true. I, she was utterly incredible. She lived in poverty. She married my dad. She she lived with the scorn that that brought to, to her in many ways. They never owned a car, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, she just slogged it out endlessly. She was incredible. Her energy level and her determination. And I think that somehow I've inherited that. In fact, to tell you a funny story, when I got married, uh, Cornelia, my wife, and this mum, we in the first years of us being married, first couple of years, what I couldn't understand is honestly true. This how thick I am. Cornelia kept like she, she spent so much time asleep. She kind of like she was always tired and like you know. And I used to say to her, Cornelia, I, I think you should go see a doctor because I, I just think you've got some energy deficiency. You know, kind of like. And then as the time went on, I slowly realised. It wasn't her energy deficiency. It was it was me. I was I, I had this problem. It's like I and I inherited that somehow from my mother. I, I genuinely I genuinely do believe that. So um, and I think it's those combinations of things, this sense that you've got a vision that came from from outside of yourself. I once heard Oprah, uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey say that, um, you know, there's only one question that each of us really ought to answer with our lives. And it's, why are we here? What are you here for? Mark Twain said there are only two important days in your life, the day you're born and the day you find out why. But the thing is, you can't push the you, uh, find out why day. You know, I've, I've watched it over the years when people have tried to invent a vision for themselves. Some people, some uh, you know, loads of people, they've not yet found that. It's not yet come to them. So so this is nothing to do with me. It genuinely isn't. I tell you, on that Friday night, when I set out for that youth club, if you'd have asked me what I wanted to be, I know what I would have said. The answer was a draftsman. Right. And I have no idea to this day quite what a draftsman is. But but I had a friend called John Dean and his dad was a draftsman. And half of our class used to want to be draftsmen because John seemed to come from a slightly um, richer home than us. It, it was to do with technical drawing and all that kind of stuff like that. So we always used to say we want to be draftsmen. So on the way to that youth club, I wanted to be a draftsman. Why? Because everybody else did. On the, and it was a nice answer to the question when asked. On the way home, I discovered it came from outside of me. I didn't say a gift from God, do you know? I knew what my life was about. And that is a gift. It's a really gift, good gift. It's a wonderful gift because it keeps you going when otherwise you'd give up. I'm sure, I'm sure your your mum, I'm sure she, I hope she lived long enough to, to, to see all the achievements that you've done still. I'm sure she's incredible. Both your parents are incredibly proud of you. And uh... can, I, can I tell you a story about her as well? She died just a few years ago. So my mum, I, I genuinely seemed to, she was so matter of fact in life. She she didn't. I only ever saw my mum cry once when my aunt died, and um, she was so matter of fact. She never ever told me she loved me, but I always knew that she did. If you see what I mean, she came from that generation totally. And anyway, she was so kind of let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. Um, so as Oasis developed and I got involved with media and I used to present TV for BBC and ITV and all this kind of stuff. So uh, and Oasis grew and grew and grew. My mum, if her friends said to her, oh, you must be proud of Steve. She'd just say, well, it's what he wants to do. <laughs> Always that. It's what he wants to do. So she never showed any recognition. Well, the funny thing is, um, when she died, um, we, I've got a brother and two sisters, and we went back to my mum's house. And my younger sister gave me this huge, huge um, box. And she said, oh, this is for you. I found it. And I looked into this box, and it's every press cutting wow. that you can imagine. I've still got it somewhere from, from the mainstream press and, you know, the Christian press. and the, I mean, all of it my mum kept. 
but never spoke to me about it. <laughs> That's a strange thing. I think it's a generational thing, but I, no one's better positioned than your mum to stick your feet down on the ground, isn't it, when you're getting a bit happy with yourself? You used the word earlier, messy. And, and this is one of the things I think so remarkable about your daughter, actually, and the work of Ella's, and of course, the work of Oasis, is this willingness to go into the sticky, messy, knotty, tangled, disheveled, unglamorous stuff. Mm. So having worked for an anti-trafficking organization, it was great to be involved in rescues. Rescue is such a loaded word, isn't it? But it was great to be at that pinnacle of someone's life changing for the potential. But actually, what was less glamorous was the days and weeks and months of working with damaged and dysfunctional people. That's left to the, that's left to the aftercare team, you know? We're the invest. We put the doors through, you know. But actually, that, that, that was where my, my heart was. That's why I started Bluebit, because I saw the long, sticky, unglamorous work being done by the, these people with disproportionately large hearts and vats of compassion. And I thought, I want these guys to be known as the heroes. These are the heroes. And it's that word messy. I think yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. And, and in your story, I've certainly heard it on one of the podcasts, you talk about starting this hostel being the start of Oasis and why you called it Oasis and you started with your wife and, you know, opening it up to these vulnerable women coming home and realizing every nice painting you'd gone out and bought and put on the wall had been nicked and the yeah. place was trashed. And, 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 but, you know, get me in quite rightly, well, I would be furious at that, but actually like finding that, that you've got to love through that stuff. You know, you can't skip that stage. That that's the difficult bit. Yes, no, absolutely, it really is. And it was a it was a great thing to, uh, to happen in my life, really. That you know, to say in a bit more detail what you just said. Finally, you know, um, I, I worked for a church as a youth worker, and then at the age of twenty nine, left that job to set up what is now Oasis. They didn't know it'd be called that. And school, hospital, house, well, the house seemed easiest. So, and it wasn't, <laughs> well, it probably was easier than the other two, but it was really difficult and took some years. But eventually got a big house uh, in Peckham and developed that. Um, and uh, Cornelia, my wife, um, um, she's very artistic. And so she cares about colour and paintings, et cetera, et cetera. So she put so much energy into this and I put energy into getting a giant television so we could all watch the football and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Within weeks, everything had been lifted, everything had been stolen. But it wasn't just that, it was that the young people that came to us, 17, 18, 19 year olds, they never said thank you. They looked at the ground, they wouldn't engage you. They never said please. And, and they were so ungrateful, you know, for everything. And that was a great learning curve for me because I was getting really angry and it took me ages to realise that the way I always say it, that if these kids had come to us with limbs missing, arms missing, unable to walk, I'd have compensated for their inabilities, uh, their disabilities. Mm. Um, but because the scarring, uh, the wounds were inside their heads, the neglect, the abuse, the violence, the betrayal, what they'd seen and witnessed, the lack of love and lack of attention. Um, I, I didn't recognize it. I stumbled towards it and began to understand it. Um, and I suppose that uh, that was a huge trans. I'm, you know, I, I'm not proud of the way that I was. I know it was my problem, not theirs. Of course, now we've come miles, you know, in the late 90s. So this was the mid 80s. But in the late 90s, the, the whole issue of neuroscience and neurodiversity began to come to the fore as the MRI scanner meant that we could actually look into someone's head, their brain, and we could see that, that somebody that wasn't loved, wasn't cared for, their brain developed in a different pattern, different shapes. They didn't make the same neural connections. So whereas, you know, somebody who's who's been loved and cared for can pride themselves on the fact that someone pushes in front of them at a bus queue or whatever, and instead of thumping this person, they stand back and, you know, oh, aren't I controlled? What we don't realize is that uh, somebody from a different situation hasn't developed, to be technical about it, the frontal cortex 
to be able to to be able to manage their responses. We have this kind of animal brain, you know, which is all our our um, our our our, um, our our emotions. But then we have this cortex, which is the management center of our brain, and it's it basically says to our emotions, "Don't do that." do this exactly it manages our emotions but if you're not you're not born with that technical term here self-regulation you know so kids will kick off you know you see it with young kids don't you i've got grandchildren now and you see them one minute they're as happy as larry and the next minute they're throwing themselves on the floor in some storm and temper they can't yet self-regulate and so slowly through good parenting and care they learn to do that and you watch it developing in my grandchildren it's fantastic that you know the way they're parented and emily you, you know such a brilliant aunt for them um so but but of course these kids don't have that and and i didn't know I, no one understood neuroscience back then or neurodiversity uh, but I was beginning to grapple towards, ah, oh, these the, these people behave like this because of what's happened to them. Um, so now we've come miles and we apply all of that understanding to all of our schools and all of our community projects and, um, and will do to this new opportunity we're given to create a different way of justice for young people who've been involved in violent crime. We had... I don't know if do you know Johnny Sutherland, ex-police commander. I, he, I he do was, know yeah, yeah. I, I thought you probably would because I know he was. He well, he lives in Brixton. He worked in Waterloo, Lambeth, and obviously mm. that's that's where you guys are, are based. He had it was on the last podcast, and he, he he mentioned that in closing. You know, that crime is only ever a response to a much deeper issue, and it goes back through all of those those yeah. things that you know. Yeah. absence of parents the, the experience of trauma from a young age and all these sort of things it's not i'd probably avoid us going back into this whole punitive response to crime but we can't treat it in that eye for an eye tooth for a tooth model yeah. that you that ancient model you described at, at the outset you also said earlier on about only seeing your mother cry once and i hope you don't mind me saying this but i heard Emily in a chat with Emily once told me because I asked her why did you go to Thailand why did you decide and she said well actually because my dad's done all sorts of things been all over the world he's been involved in all sorts but I've only really seen him cry once or at least at this point in my life she'd only seen you cry once and that was when you come was back that, from... was that when I looked at her bedroom <laughs> okay she, twice <laughs> or maybe this must have been a different type of crying but she said <laughs> she, she saw you cry and it was because you'd returned from a trip to Thailand and the suffering or the experience that came with that was so profound that it had really marked you. And she went, that's why I wanted to yeah. go over there. If this upsets my dad, then then that's the place I want to yeah. go, which I think is a really beautiful thing. So so how did that come about? How did the, I understand the schools and the hostels and UK stuff, but how did that branch into an international sphere of response? Well, what, what, what actually happened was, um, doing youth work in this country it was right at the beginning of oasis actually uh, doing youth work in this country i worked for a church in tunbridge in kent and we developed community projects and and one of them was i came up with this idea of why don't we take over an empty shop front and we'll ask the owners if we can have it for a month or a couple of months and we do it up as a restaurant and then and and we'll run it as an eat less pay eat less pay more restaurant so that you you had a meal that you might have in one of the poorer countries of the world and you paid first world prices for it and then all of that money we take and we give to charities oasis still didn't exist then we give to charities for their work in education etc around the world well this happened in tunbridge and and it was highly successful and then i started oasis and i thought to myself why don't i just take that idea and make it happen nationally so we had you know 150 different versions of this happening youth groups around the country doing all of this stuff restaurants and then we ran radio stations around the country always at christmas we called the whole project christmas cracker and we raised millions of pounds actually to uh to give to other charities and um each year I um, I tried to make uh, a video about the kind of projects that benefited from the work that was happening. 
And um, one year I, I went to Thailand and went to Bangkok and then was taken by some people that we we funded the work that they were doing with uh, uh, children who came from, you know, they were abandoned children. I was going to say disadvantaged backgrounds. They weren't disadvantaged. They were much more than that. They were just forgotten. And, um, and uh, we went to this home that we were funding uh, where these kids were given a fantastic start, but they were all taken from the kind of state state hospital and one day the, the the team that we were funding they said to me why don't we go out and see it, so you can see what we do because they could take very few children and we drove out i don't know where it uh, where it was in bangkok it took ages to get there in bangkok everything takes ages to get to uh, the traffic's appalling it's got better over the years actually and um we went out to this hospital it was an old disused hospital and they turned it into a children's home. And I, it's a long time ago now, but I think there were 500 beds in the hospital, but there were 1,500 children. And we went into this ward and there were three kids to a bed and they'd lay across the bed. And, 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 and this whole ward, I, I, I remember going into several wards and there'd be, you know, you'd have a baby laying across the bed and then a child that was two and one that was six and that was their bed together. And the bed would be saturated in urine, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember going up to one child who was sitting, I, I can remember it was like yesterday, sitting on the edge of a bed and I would guess, perhaps seven, eight um, years old, and they were rocking backwards and forwards. I'm sure you've seen those kids who, you know, who just, they're in such torment, just rocking backwards and forwards, rocking backwards and forwards. And I went across to this child, no one touched these children, and the staff all wore, wore face masks, which of course everybody is very uh, au fait with now, but this was unusual, uh, really unusual. And I went across to this boy, just rocking backwards and forwards like this. And I sat beside him and I touched him and I began to stroke him. And as I stroked him, slowly he stopped rocking until he was quiet. I couldn't, of course, communicate with him because he knew no English and I knew no Thai. But he found peace in that moment. But then I had to leave. We were called away. And as I got up and I walked out of the ward, I looked back through the little window uh, in the door, glass window, and it was beginning to rock again like that. And the truth is, I walked out of that hospital and I sat, we'd gone there in a Volkswagen camper van. And I sat in the camper van and I just couldn't continue. And I prayed, I remember what I prayed, I prayed, God, I cannot go on. I just can't go on. I can't go back to the UK and pretend I've not seen this. I can't go on. I, I, I just wish I was dead. I cannot live the rest of my life knowing the pain that I've seen in this child and, and, and do nothing about it. It was just devastating. And, um, and it, changed my, it changed my whole approach to life. Actually, it changed my theology, I was going to say, which sounds a right, a posh word, doesn't it? It changed the whole way I saw the universe, the whole way I saw God. It changed the whole way I saw my mission and my purpose, or it deepened my mission and purpose. But that moment changed my life. I didn't know that Emily even knew that story, let alone anything else. I would say about Emily, she's a much better version of all this than I am. She's an amazing person who has given her life. She went to Thailand and she lived there for six and a half years. She learned Thai. She worked in a red light district with women that were abandoned and have got nothing. That we are so far from creating a just world for people, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And then people go, well, you know, I've worked for it. I've worked for it. You know, I've pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Mm -hmm. These people, they have no boots. They've got no straps. Mm -hmm. You know, the world is set up so wrongly. Um, yeah, that story changed my life, and um, and and um, I'm, I'm Emily's got a sister, 
the two two brothers and the great thing is they are all driven by a sense of justice it's a wonderful thing for me to watch and to see yeah there's nothing that can i think it just imprints on you those experiences i I had a few of my own and um yeah like if you ever need motivation for anything i I could never run a business that's just about cool trainers or t-shirts or or jigsaws i i could only do something if i knew that it was in response to this because once you when you have some sort of naked interaction you know just like raw it's not polished it's not through the lens of a of a film crew that's being paid for by the charity it's like this is reality and when i turn my back i'll probably never see this kid again you know you can't unsee it and uh it it haunts you but like like you've done you know i'm just trying to make it a positive impact on my life yeah. rather than just sort of uh, a ghost that 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 haunts the, you but yeah yeah and the other thing is your life hangs on moments doesn't it what if i'd never gone to that youth club you know because it wasn't some moral purpose that drew me to the youth club it was mary hooper's beauty mm. you know what what if the 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 guys that ran the youth club who i thought were all really old <laughs> you know the old men it turned out <laughs> that they were all kind of 21 22 23 year olds they were all students they were all theological students you know uh, so i know that now but they just looked old to me at the time what if they hadn't been there what if they'd never invested in me so i know that there were one two three or four nights in my life as a teenager when well, to tell you the story the other way around, recently, um, just before the lockdown, I sat in a board meeting at the Ministry of Justice. Um, and so there I sit with, you know, the people who run justice in our country. And I remember saying to them, you know, the strange thing is, if one or two nights in my life had turned out differently when I was a teenager, I wouldn't be here talking to you about what we do about justice. I'd be still serving time in prisons because I also know that what happens to kids a lot of the time is they get caught in this loop. Though for all children who get involved in the in a in a, in a, a custodial sentence, i.e., you know, in a detention centre, um, the facts, the figures are that ninety-seven percent of them will be back in prison in their mm. adult years and will keep going around the loop. So. It was the investment of of a few people who gave up their time who changed my life. Mm. It's funny. You th- we can all give to someone else. Isn't it? I can give it. Yeah. Youth clubs. Sorry to interrupt. Youth clubs have got such a bad rap, haven't they? <laughs> you know, like you think of them as being a bit crap, and uh, but look at the influence that has had. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's remarkable, and I think it's worth us making it really clear that we can talk about stories in Dominican Republic, Thailand, India, describe these horrific scenes of poverty, situations of exploitation, trafficking. But actually it's worth pointing out like this happens on our doorsteps and your work, it's, it's a UK problem, right? It's, it's, it's not just over there in, you know, the developing world, Mm. quote unquote, it's, it's all around us. I imagine if I try to connect those worlds, which might seem on the surface quite disparate, right? So a, a anti-trafficking project, obviously Stop the Traffic was born out of Oasis if people weren't aware of that. These projects around the world, but actually going into primary schools in London, Bristol, wherever, you're really affecting the same issues in some way, aren't you? Yeah, all, all of the same issues. So um, the reality is if you take, again, the far end of the justice system, and then I'd like to work my way back from it, but um, of the young people who are in custody um, serving a sentence today, 51% of them are black or ethnic minority, 51%. Um, Almost 50% of them are looked after children. In other words, fostered, et cetera, et cetera. They've not grown up in a home where they're loved. Huge numbers of them are autistic 
So what we tend to do as a society is we take young people who we don't understand and we catch them doing something that's actually normal for them. You know, it's a natural response, as you were saying before, to a situation they find themselves in. And then we punish them for it and we lock them up. And we hope that locking them in a cell, um, a new report out just um, last week uh, was about the number of hours that young people are locked in cells alone. We lock them up behind a steel door with bars instead of windows, et cetera, et cetera. And we leave them there for a couple of years. That's the average sentence length, just under a couple of years, because you do half your time in, in the custodial uh, sentence and then half back in a community. So you'd be in for two years-ish. We leave them like that, and then we release them, and then we wonder why they've not been cured. Yeah. And anyway, they're cured of what? Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's, it's not it's about love and seeing you and hearing you and investing in you that that's that's the that's the problem so at the far end of the justice system um when education the system of education and welfare and social work and youth work and housing and employment when all of those systems have failed a young person then what we do is we take them and lock them up for it. Mm. It's an absolutely bizarre situation. To call it Dickensian isn't fair to those who lived in Dickensian times. It's barbaric. And we have to see the world differently. We have to see the world differently because it is different. It's about coming to our senses. Young people don't fail the system fails them. Mm. All of the systems fail them. So any young person who's excluded from school, they're, you know, if, if, well, I've got a friend who's, um, who's, uh, who's um, a very senior psychologist, he puts it this way, his name's Andy, he says, he says, he might be a dick, but there's a reason he's a dick. Now, it's such a great saying, you know, I know it's true of me. When I'm a dick, there's always a reason why I'm a dick. You know, there's a reason. There's always a thing behind the, behind the thing, isn't there? There's a reason why I behave like that. And the more stressed I am, I've learned through life, the more stupid I become. I don't know if you can relate to that, Bryn. But, but the more stressed I am, the more stupidly I behave. Mm. My worst behaviours come when I feel under pressure. So you take a young person who lives their whole life under pressure, they're going to behave in ways that somebody who's not in that situation would say were immature and stupid, but they're natural. They're natural responses to the situation that these young kids find themselves in. So what we have to do is undo that by going back to the beginning. I was going to ask you from your unique vantage point, whether you know, how you think we're getting on but I think I could probably skip that question because my my guess is not not too great but I'm excited about this new project you described at the outset I'm going to be really keen to see how that goes this alternative method of justice I wonder as we get really close to closing if I could split my last two questions one of them being I wonder if you've looked back and like you say self-analysis is dangerous but re- reflection is good and whether you've identified any key any key learning points through your life or for your position with those oasis, even if this doesn't get, get go out on the podcast, you know, I, I would love to hear it. If you think actually, Bryn, if I could give you one piece of advice, it's this. Yeah. Well, the one piece of advice that springs to mind, I guess there's loads and loads of them, but the one uh, piece of advice is this. If you have a vision, you'll be frustrated. Uh, so I live my whole life with frustration. I'm not happy about the way things are. I want things to be different, but I've learned that vision and frustration are the same thing. So, you know, what is vision? It's longing for, hoping for, living for what is not yet. That's vision. It's not tangible yet, but we're driving at it. Mm. What is frustration? It's longing for, hoping for, dreaming for what is not yet. Frustration is just, a different way a longer way of spelling vision or it's the it's you know the two sides of the same coin or what however you want to choose to put it and and so if you have vision you will live with frustration 
and the thing is that 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 there's no way out of this do, do you know it's it's terminal if you like <laughs> so so if you have vision there it's incurable uh, and the frustration is incurable so it's learning to live with that and to know that out of that unrest out of that hungering and that longing and that thirsting is slowly slowly born what you want to see I think one of the other things I've learned, you only ask for one thing, but here's another thing, is that, um, you know, I, I, Oasis, such as it is, began in my head when I was 14. It began in reality when I was kind of 29-ish, you know, and I'm 65. So what happens is people can look at something like Oasis and go, oh boy, you know, I'm running this charity and we've only got three people or six people. We haven't got any staff and we haven't got any, any, any exactly. You know, the thing is, keep on moving and keep on shifting. Am I frustrated about Oasis? Yes, I am. Are there things we want to be doing that we're not doing? Could I not bore you for the next half hour with the list of things that I want to get done this year? Of course I could. But if you're faithful, if you keep sticking at it, slowly, slowly, you make progress all too slowly. But actually, at the same time, from the other end, you're you're getting on with it. So so don't despise the frustration. Mm. It's a gift. It's a gift. I love that. Yeah, that's really good. That sort of healthy discontentment, which is which is worth remembering. I wonder if you could tell me, which is the same question I ask for every guest. Final closing question. I like to leave in a positive place. So I wonder, Steve, what gives you hope for our, our future? What gives me hope for the future? Well, I think hope's got to be tangible. There's two kinds of hope, aren't there? There's that hope, which is kind of a dream, you know, oh, I hope it all gets better. <laughs> and there's hope, which is built on plans and preparation. Um, I was reading again that quote that everyone knows just yesterday morning, actually, where Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe tilts towards, tends towards justice. So I do see huge progress that is being made. I see whole areas of life where when I was a kid, there was no justice, where there is justice now. I see the world opening up for people who are L, G, B or T. I see the world opening up in terms of us confronting our long burying of the racial tensions that are in our society. I see learning opening up for kids who were weren't born, you know, into the right kind of families with the right kind of access, etc. It's slow, but I see it happening all of the all of the time, and uh, that brings me real hope as as I as as I move forward. And I happen to believe uh, Martin Luther King was a Baptist minister. Um, I am a Baptist minister as well. <laughs> And I think that my hope that the arc of history bends toward justice comes from exactly the same place and exactly the same kind of theology as his does. I believe the universe is personal. I believe that the meaning of the universe is love. I believe that's its meaning. And I believe therefore the pursuit of justice and love is one that ultimately cannot be quenched. Beautiful. What a beautiful place to end. Steve, thank you so much. It's been everything I was hoping for. It's been really great talking with you this afternoon. It's been great talking with you. really has. Thank you, Brent. I just think it's phenomenal. All that's come out of a young boy's vision on his walk home from a youth club in South London. I'm totally inspired by Steve's call to embrace frustration as a sign of vision. And I admire the way Steve challenges convention and asks us to look differently on those troubled young lives that are excluded from our schools and occupy our institutes. To start our response from a place of love, who could take issue with that? If you would like to find out more about the Oasis Trust, you can visit their website, oasisuk.org. And you can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Chalk, C-H-A-L-K, 
E. And just like Steve Chalk, you can buy yourself a bag of Blue Bear Coffee by going to our website, bluebearcoffee.com. And after many months of trying, we have just started offering subscriptions. So you can now have your favorite coffee freshly roasted and delivered to your door once a month. Or you can join our coffee club and educate your palate as you take a trip with us around the world's coffee belt and receive a different specialty single origin coffee through the post every month. Doesn't that sound good? Well, I will hold you back no longer. Thank you for listening. Stay strong. Get frustrated. Peace.